Hi, this is your host, Michael O'Connell. I just wanted to clarify that this episode was recorded before Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and the migration of many journalists over to the social media platform Mastodon. Enjoy this episode. Hey, everyone. The It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. It's pretty clear overall that most of the people who use these sites for news are pretty happy and have pretty positive attitudes about that experience. Mention social media, and most people would think of Facebook or Twitter, or maybe Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or even Snapchat. But there are other social media platforms out there that are giving their particular audience information they want, as well as a sense of community. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Galen Stocking is a senior computational social scientist on the journalism research team at the Pew Research Center. He's also one of the lead authors of Pew's recent report, The Role of Alternative Social Media in the News and Information Environment. Galen, welcome to It's All Journalism. Hi, thank you for having me. First of all, you're the first computational social scientist I've met. You know, tell me about that. What is that? What's your focus? What do you study and how do you do it? That's a great question. I think a computational social scientist is kind of a mouthful of a term, probably a longer term than it really needs to be. I think people don't necessarily know what it is. But really what it means is people who are in in roles like mine want to bring a wide range of tools to answer any kind of research question. So for instance, on this project, we use Python scripts to collect data from each of these individual sites. We use algorithmic tools to determine what the posts were about on each of these sites. And in the past, Myself or others have used other kinds of machine learning or other kinds of tools to try to analyze data that we have. So it's really about bringing in data beyond survey data to understand you know, important questions about what the public thinks and their attitudes toward various stimuli. Okay. So, so what led you to this career and you know, how'd you end up at Pew Research Center? I have taken a very winding and and storied role, I think. I was always interested in journalism. I was always reading the newspaper as a kid, and I was on the school newspaper in high school. I even started an underground newspaper in high school. So I was that kind of person, right? Um, But then when I went to college, I didn't really continue that. My undergrad was in computer science. And toward the end of my college career, I... This is right after 9-11. I switched to international relations. I finished my undergrad and I got a master's in international relations. And as I was working kind of in that realm, it became more and more apparent to me that, and I think to a lot of people, that how people organize was changing and how, and the use of the internet and social media was a key role in that. And I wanted to say that I wanted to learn more. So I went to graduate school, got my PhD in political science. And in that role, I, I looked at how the public influences what the news media covers and how what the news media covers influences what the public thinks is important and that there's this cyclical and interactive relationship between the two groups. Basically, uh, as I finished my dissertation, I just happened to be really lucky and see a job was opening up at Pew and applied immediately and, and got hired. And I've been here for seven and a half years now. I've done work on 
topics like this where we're looking at social media sites. I've done similar work looking at uh, YouTube. We've also done work looking at what the news media, how the news media covers uh, new administrations, looking at how people's behavior is when they, they're looking at websites with news articles. So a wide range of topics pulling in you know, different kinds of tools. That's a really fascinating area of journalism, digital data journalism, for sure. You know, I find this report about alternative social media really kind of fascinating. In the past, we've had some people on the podcast who were talking about things like, you know, Gamergate and QAnon and sort of the things that were sort of going on in the background of, uh, you know, political science, you know, the beginning of this, you know, this century, I guess, or at least the last decade. So I think probably a lot of people are familiar with the alternative social media site that, you know, former President Trump launched uh, was Truth. Truth Social. Uh, Truth Social. But tell me about some of these other ones that, that have come up and, you know, how many people are actually engaged in them? Yeah. So I think uh, it's really interesting how these have developed. I think if you were to look five years ago, it seemed like the dust was really settled. We had Facebook, we had Twitter, we had YouTube, there was also Reddit, but there weren't a lot of other smaller social media sites. I mean, those were the big ones and those are the ones that people went to and, and you didn't really see other ones getting a lot of attention. Since then, we've seen the rise of TikTok. And of course, people have always been using chat apps as well. So we've been looking at this for a long time. We've been looking at, at this environment for a long time. And we always want to try to stay on top of what is new and emerging and get a sense of who's actually on there, what the sites are and what they're doing and provide that kind of data to the public so that people know when they hear about Donald Trump launching Truth Social, what that actually means and where that fits into the broader landscape. We looked at seven sites. We looked at BitChute, Gab, Gitter, Parler, Rumble, Telegram, and Truth Social. All of these are relatively small to be included, but they, they have some kind of a user base. To be included in general, we made a requirement that they need to have at least 500,000 monthly unique visitors in December 2021, which is when we we're making the selection process, or they need to have some kind of significant media coverage. So for instance, Truth Social had not launched yet, but we expected that it would probably have significant media coverage simply because of the involvement of former President Trump. So we included them, another site in there, because of that kind of coverage. And so there's differences between these sites. BitChute is and Rumble are focused on video. Telegram is a chat app that has groups that you can broadcast messages to thousands of users at the same time. The other four that we looked at are kind of more of your familiar apps with a, a feed of posts that are from accounts that you follow and you can interact and comment and like those posts as well. So we, we did a survey with American Trends Panel, which is a large panel of U.S. adults. And we found that overall, 6% of users of people use at least one of these sites to get news on a regular basis. None of these sites actually attracted more than 2% of U.S. adults to get news on a regular basis. Okay. Well, I know things like Snapchat, for example, skews to a younger audience. I mean, is there, is there a demographic identification with each of these or all of these? You know, who is it that's sort of going to them to get their news? That is a great question. We didn't see really 
substantial differences in most demographic categories. There were a few small differences, but I think not really enough to get into in, in most of the kind of standard demographic areas, but with the one exception of party. Now, for people who use at least one of these seven sites for news, we found that this group is two-thirds Republican or lean to the Republican Party and one-third Democratic or lean to the Democratic Party. This is quite a big difference from the group that uses more established social media sites for news on a regular basis. We asked of those who use Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube for news on, on a regular basis, and that group is 55% Democratic or Democratic leaners and 39% Republican or Republican leaners. So much more Republican overall than more established sites. Well, I would think that would would make more sense in the sense that the general conservative point of view that, you know, the mainstream media is a liberal media and you can't sort of trust what they're saying. And so, you know, if they see conversations on, on their Facebook feed or Twitter, even though those have, have sort of an echo chamber effect in the way that they're parsing, you know, the way that they're sharing their posts, but I guess this is their way to find a different community that sort of supports their beliefs. We found some interesting things that relate to that. So when we looked at the sites themselves, one thing that was really interesting about that is that none of the sites actually had a partisan identification. Even Truth Social, with its attachment to former President Trump, does not affiliate itself officially or identify itself officially as being conservative or Republican or anything like that. In fact, that was the only site that mentioned politics at all and explicitly says that it's a nonpartisan site. So that's what they say they are. Another important thing that they say they are is that they all say that they're protecting free speech or havens for free speech or protecting the First Amendment. And this is a big part of the marketing of all seven of these sites. They say it on their about page or their homepage, and they're really emphasizing this area of what they provide. Now, when you look at the users themselves and we ask them about their, their experience on these sites, it is pretty clear overall that most of the people who use these sites for news are pretty happy and have pretty positive attitudes about that experience. So two thirds actually said that they had found communities of people who share their views on these sites. So two thirds of those who get news there actually found that that sense of community that they're looking for. It sort of gets me to think about a couple of things, one of which is the 2016 election, one of the things that people talked about a lot was how posts that were on Twitter and Facebook were, you know, being aimed at certain sort of audiences that were trying to trigger, I guess, certain types of audiences to vote or to not vote. And following that, there was sort of a push to get back against Twitter and Facebook. And they, you know, ended up sort of changing their algorithm and, you know, sort of barring certain types of speech on their platforms. And I guess, you know, is this sort of the place where those people who may have been, I don't know, turned off by the idea of any type of moderation or any type of closed off from being able to say whatever they want to say, is this is kind of where they've gone? It's certainly clear that that's who these sites are trying to attract. This is, I think, who they, the, the market gap is, right? So they think that, I think it's clear that they are trying to get those users onto their sites. That being said, we were very interested to see how much content moderation is actually occurring on these sites. So when we think about moderation, we're not thinking about spam or things to like 
remove things like child pornography or things like that. We're talking about moderation to remove hate speech or to remove misinformation or other kinds of speech that are you know, raise concerns among some segments of, of the public. So we looked at their terms of service and other kinds of policies to see what their moderation policies actually were. And some of them actually have moderation policies. BitChute, for example, has a transparency tool that they publish every, every quarter. They have published once and they promise to publish other quarters that has indications of the kinds of content that has been removed. Now, you can see something similar. Uh, Google, I believe, has has a transparency report. I believe Twitter and Facebook do as well. Other sites have items in their terms of service about the kinds of, of content they allow or don't allow. It's, it was clear that it's pretty common for sites to say they don't allow obscene content, either obscene language or obscene images or videos. And you know, that is a form of moderation if they're they're removing content because it could be deemed offensive to users. Now, I remember when former President Trump launched Truth Social, a lot of the criticism of, of it at the time was that, you know, the audience was much smaller, didn't have the reach. But, you know, if you're reaching your core audience, then maybe that's enough to do. Do these sites, do they have anything that would approach as a business model? Is there anybody trying to monetize this in any way through advertising sponsorships or anything? Yeah, actually, we looked at revenue models on these sites, and we found that quite a few of them have some kind of revenue stream that they're using. Many of them are linked to high-profile backers that either provide funding or are you know linked to them in some way. For instance, former President Trump linked to Truth Social. We don't know what his financial involvement is, but we know that that is you know a high-profile backer that's connected to them. Others provide account upgrades or subscriptions to give people some kind of added value to their experience on the site. These can be things like for BitChute and Rumble, which are video-focused sites. You can increase the number of channels you can host and other kinds of tools for creators. For Telegram, their upgrade gives you more storage. It gives you more downloads. It adds some premium stickers. There's a lot of that kind of activity. Several of these sites also have stores where you can purchase t-shirts or hats or you know other kinds of swag. And I think probably most interestingly to me, at least coming from a thinking about technology and how technology is changing perspective, one of these sites actually has a, an NFT store where they sell NFTs from their site and from partners to the public. Well, cool. So they are trying to make money in some ways. Now, I know you mentioned the moderation, not necessarily having to do with dis or misinformation. Are the news sources that are, are utilizing these the way other news outlets might use Twitter or Facebook to uh, share their content or to engage with the audience? Well, it's really hard to know what moderation is actually happening. I mean, one of the criticisms of moderation is that, or widespread criticisms, I, I think, is that it's kind of a black box. People don't know what it takes to have something removed and are kind of in the dark when they get these takedown notices. Often you can see that in some of the complaints of when moderation is applied to somebody. So on these sites, we don't know the extent to which they are moderating any kind of misinformation or disinformation. But there are some examples from our data that we can see that suggest that at least some of that is coming through. 
But on the other hand, we don't know if it's also available on more established sites. When we looked at the posts, for example, we looked at posts from prominent accounts, those accounts that had the most followers on each site. We looked at posts from June 2022. And we looked at them across several different topics that were prominent in the news overall during that month. So one thing that stood out to me in terms of misinformation and disinformation is some of the individual names that were cited and figures that were talked about you know, in these posts were individuals that we know to be vaccine skeptics. And so that suggests that there's at least some allowance of you know, discussion around that content. Additionally, when we looked at the, the websites that were linked to most often in these posts, I think that about half of them were other social media sites. But when you get beyond that, some of the most prominent sites that we saw, most commonly linked to sites that we saw, are ones that are you know, digital-only outlets that have been associated with misinformation in the past. There is some presence for misinformation on these sites. The difficulty, I think, is that we don't really have a comparison point. We don't know the extent to which we would see links to these sites on more established social media sites. Okay. So we don't necessarily see a presence of any like mainstream media in any way outside of maybe a post, like sharing a link to something. So it is interesting. Some news outlets are on some of these sites and they have official accounts on these sites. I know Reuters is on one of them. I believe Washington Post and New York Times have Telegram accounts. So there's examples of more established, big name news outlets having a presence on these sites. But they're not linked to as often, at least at least from the prominent accounts. The prominent accounts, when they're linking to sites that are outside of social media sites, it seems to be the most commonly linked to sites are ones that are associated with hosting misinformation. Okay. Do you have a sense of, you know, what type of legs these platforms have? Is this something that do you think will continue to grow? Or do you think this is something that's going to function in maybe the same sort of size? Maybe there'll be fewer of them. Maybe there'll be newer ones. You know, do you have any ideas about that? It's always hard to know what, what the future will bring, it just in general, and especially with social media. I mean, this is a really rapidly evolving space. At least two of these sites didn't exist two years ago. They've already grown enough to, you know, have a one or one to two percent of U.S. adults using them for news. So it's hard to know what what will happen. It's hard to know if they would consolidate. I think one intriguing and, and kind of a like a could really upend the entire system is Kanye West, who's also known as Yay reportedly buying Parler. We don't know what the, if that will go through and what that will mean, but you know that suggests that there is interest from at least you know some large-pocketed ownership, and we don't necessarily know what that will end up leading to in the future. But with these kinds of developments, it's just really difficult to have a sense of where we will be in this space in the coming years. And it's interesting because if you think of things like uh, Reddit, which you know not a lot of people you know, maybe paying attention to that, but there's a very vibrant usage there. You know, there are news sites and reporters who, you know, share content there and monitor it for stories and trends and things. How closely should people be following these, do you think? I think it's interesting that you bring up Reddit because when we did a study on Reddit that was similar in some respects 
did this study, uh, we did that in 2016, the user base was about the same size as these sites taken as a whole. And Reddit is much bigger now. We don't know if, if, if any of these sites will grow to that rate, but there's definitely quite the, the potential, the possibility for them doing so. It's clear that this is part of the toolkit that journalists have is to look at, at social media as a proxy for public opinion. It's not always the best idea because the people who are posting about news on social media are not necessarily representative of the broader public. And I think that's the case here as well, especially with the over-representation of Republicans versus Democrats on these platforms. It doesn't mean that they can't be used for getting a sense of what users of these sites leave. And I think that it's clear that the news media is doing this already. I very commonly see journalists screenshotting posts on Truth Social from former President Trump and using that as a way to, you know, kind of similar to what they would do when he was on Twitter and to use that as a communications platform for him. So I think that, you know, journalists are starting to think about these sites in this way. I don't know the extent to which they will continue to do so. But I think one thing that they should think about is some of these questions about moderation and the extent to which what they are including is information that has been um, that's factual or not. And that's a problem with any social media site just in general, and also something that we should be concerned with here. One of the interesting findings with moderation that offers some insight into some of these sites is that when we looked at accounts that had the most followers, what we're calling prominent accounts, 15% of them had actually been banned or demonetized on some other platform. So there's often a reason, I know not always, that's not always because they were just reading misinformation or other kinds of things, but it's something to consider when going to these sites as a source of public opinion. Oh, interesting. Because, you know, the people who have followers on, you know, on Twitter or something, and if somebody's banned from that, if they end up on some other platform, it makes sense that, you know, a portion of, of that audience would, who were loyal to that person would probably follow them. This is all kind of fascinating for me, just social media in general and how people use it and how it's used to disseminate information, <laughs> some true, some uh, false. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything else you want to mention? So we had a couple questions that we asked everyone that took our survey, including people who use these sites for news, people who had heard of these sites, but don't use them for news, and just people who have never heard of them at all. And we asked them if they thought tech companies should take steps to restrict false content, or if it was more important to protect free speech, even if it meant that false content would be published. So it was a, an either or question, you had to, to select one or the other. And basically this is asking the extent to which people think tech companies should be moderating misinformation. And there was a huge, huge gap between those who get news on these sites and US adults more generally. So 64% of those who get news on these sites said that we should be protecting free speech, even if it means that there's false content that gets published. But only 37% of U.S. adults said the same thing. U.S. adults more generally were more likely to say that tech companies should be restricting false content or taking some kind of steps to restrict false content. We also asked the same thing about offensive content, so not necessarily false content, but you know, content that should be offensive. And there, the gap was a little bit narrower, but still those who get news on these alternative social media sites are more likely to say that the freedom to publish information should be protected overall. So that really gets to that like 
sense of these sites being havens for free speech, and, and that's what they're trying to promote themselves as. Now, I know you said that there was a slight difference with when it came to sort of offensive content, but I mean, did you parse that into offensive in the sense of maybe anti-religious or, you know, anything in a subject like that or other types of uh, content like LGBTQ issues or things like that? So on that question, we didn't, you know, ask about different types of potentially offensive content. We just asked broadly about offensive content, but we did see you know, some language that's offensive when we looked at the posts from Pollen accounts from June 2022. So especially on the LGBTQ issues, there were some of the most prominent keywords that were in posts about or phrases that were in posts about LGBTQ issues, use terms like pedo or groomer that were pretty prominent in discussions during that time period about LGBTQ individuals. And that I think a lot of LGBTQ individuals would take as offensive. Galen, there's so much in this this report. I encourage people to uh, read it. We're going to have the link on our website, but it's also, of course, on the Pew Research Center site. And again, it's the role of alternative social media in the news and information environment. Galen, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I had a great time talking to you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.